So let's read together Mark 14 from verse 43. Hear now the words of the living God. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under God. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. That's a reading of God's word. Let's just pray together. Oh, Father, we need Thee. We need Thee every hour. We need You, especially now, Lord, as we approach Your Word. Father, who can understand Your Word without Your Holy Spirit? Without Your Spirit opening our eyes, opening our, our ears, softening our hearts to hear what You want us to know. Father, help us to see um, this tragedy for what it really was. But then also show us that glory of Christ, that he was a man of sorrows who went to the cross as a lamb led, led to be slaughtered, and yet you were silent, yet you opened not your, your mouth, yet you went willingly. You laid down your life so that we might be saved. And Father, I pray that we might see that and help us, Lord, to rejoice in it and to walk in that every day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, beloved, the events of the, of, of the crucifixion and the passion of Jesus will now go in rapid succession to the cross. Remember, Jesus has just exited the Garden of Gethsemane where he wrestled deeply with, with God his Father and really wrestling with the, the prospect of becoming sin, which he has never experienced, never tasted, but yet he submitted his will and submitted to God's will and trusting his father and his soul into his hands. And what we will notice here with the arrest, with the arrest of Jesus, that we will look at four points, four points that we will see out of this text that we should learn. We will look at a lesson, a warning, an encouragement, and then the final climax. So a lesson, a warning, an encouragement, and then the final climax. But before we look at the first point, let's just look at the context, the context of our passage. No sooner does Jesus stand up from prayer when they hear noise of a large crowd coming to Jesus. But this time the crowd is not here to listen to his teaching. This time the crowd is not here to be healed from any disease. This time the crowd is not here to be freed from a de demon. No, it is to arrest him. And at the head of the group comes one of Jesus' own disciples. Judas, look at verse 43, look at verse 43, and immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. 
Now, the role of Judas was really essential in the whole betrayal and the seizing of Jesus because only Judas, as one of the 12, knew where Jesus and his disciples frequently went to refresh themselves. So Judas knew the location where Jesus and his disciples would retreat after being in in the city of Jerusalem. And we, we read that especially in John 18. Listen to John 18, verses 1 and 2. It says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook of Brookidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. And then it says, Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Do you hear? So Judas knew the place where they often met as the disciples. So Judas knew exactly where to go to betray him. And another reason why Judas was important is because it was dark. So in the dark, it would be easy to mistake one for another to grab a different person than the person you want to arrest. So it is important that that's why the kiss, the sign is so important that they grab the right man. So this is what Judas was needed for. He needed to make the job of the Pharisees and the religious leaders easy to identify Jesus and also to arrest Jesus. Which leads us to our first point, a lesson. A lesson we can learn as we look at this text. And the first thing we can see, this lesson is this, that the kingdom of God does not advance by force or violence. The kingdom of God does not advance by force or by violence. And we'll see that now in in a moment. Because the first thing we notice is what's sad is the way they expected almost Jesus to react, right? So they treated Jesus like he was some common robber. So they they were thinking that he would defend himself with his disciples. So they needed physical force with the clubs and the swords so that they can arrest him. Now, the hypocrisy of this, Jesus actually points out in verses 48. Look at verse 48, verse 49, how hypocritical they were. It says, Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? He says, day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. So Jesus just points out, you had every opportunity to arrest me. I was public. I didn't hide away. I didn't. Why now? Why in secret? Why when nobody is around? You see, what they had to do is they knew they couldn't arrest him publicly because the crowds would probably stone them because they all were hanging on his words. So they had to arrest him at night, get the trial over in night, so that they can just execute him at the daytime. <clears throat> so that was, the, that was their understanding. That was their misunderstanding, really, of Jesus, that he would defend himself with force. But what is interesting is not just the Pharisees and the leaders had this misunderstanding. Even Jesus' own disciples had this misunderstanding about God's kingdom. Look at verse 46 to 47. Verse 46 to 47. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now Mark doesn't give us much detail about who this was, but John's gospel tells us it was Peter. Peter himself drew the sword and cut off the ear of Malchus. Malchus was the, the name of the servant of the high priest. And Luke's gospel says Jesus immediately healed him, which is an amazing thing. Like They're busy arresting him, and he's busy healing. It just seems like Jesus doesn't stop caring for others, right? Now, Peter, what was maybe happening in Peter's mind, remember, Peter was expecting a physical kingdom, a literal kingdom to come right then, right there. And he was probably thinking, if I defend, if I stand up 
for Jesus, then maybe Jesus will then use his miracles and to, to defend us. He's the Messiah, isn't he? He will sit at the right hand of, of God. He will defend us. So Peter might, might have thought, let, let us bring in the kingdom by force. In this sense, I think we should just step back and give him some credit. Remember what Peter said to Jesus a few hours ago. He says, I am willing to die for you. And here you can actually see he is trying. He is actually attempting to defend Jesus. But here's the problem. He was missing the point. He was missing the, the point completely. He wasn't listening to Jesus. He wasn't listening to him. Jesus has told him over and over three times he must be delivered over to die and rise on the third day. So although it was good intentions, it was misplaced. It was wrong. He missed the point. And Matthew, Matthew's gospel actually gives us Jesus' words to Peter. Listen to what he says to Peter in Matthew 26, verse 52. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will not at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? So if Peter might have thought that Jesus could call down angels to fight, then he was right. So he was completely wrong to think that Jesus needed Peter's help. Jesus didn't need Peter's help. <laughs> if he wanted to really defend himself, at a moment he can call down millions of, of thousands, I don't know how much 12 legions are, thousands of angels. And the sad story only shows us how mistaken the disciples were about Jesus and the kingdom at this stage. Jesus himself explained to Pontius Pilate, remember when Pontius Pilate also took Jesus aside and said, do you know that I, can, I have the power and the authority to free you? And listen to what Jesus said, John 18, verse 36. He says, Jesus answered him, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. It would have been coming in by force that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. You see, that's exactly what Peter had wrong. He thought the kingdom of God is from this world. And therefore, they needed to defend Jesus, stand up for him. But Jesus came, firstly, to establish his kingdom in the hearts of men. He came to win our hearts, our souls, to wash us, save us from our sins. He came to seal the new covenant with his blood through his death for all those who would believe in him. So make no mistake, just to clarify, Jesus' kingdom will be physical. It will be literal when he comes again. Then you could say it will be by force, but it will be by the force of Jesus. I love that text in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. You know, the, the greatest demonic human ruler ever in the world who will still come, his name, we don't know his name, but he would be the Antichrist. And you know how Jesus will kill him? The Bible says, by the breath of his mouth. By the breath of his mouth, Antichrist, dead, defeated. It's like one of those boxing fights, you know, like when you expect it to go on for like 12 rounds. And like the first punch and the person falls and like, what a waste. Like that was so easy. That's, that's, that's kind of the picture with Jesus. Like when, if he really wants to fight, it will not be a contest. But not now. Not now. That is still coming. So here's the lesson for us, beloved, as a small church, for us as disciples of Jesus, 
The kingdom of God is not advanced by force, by violence, by manipulation, by lights or smoke screens or saying the right words at the right time. No. And many times in human history, the church has made this mistake, right? The Roman Catholic Church often has thought of the kingdom of God as something physical that people must, be, must submit. And whenever that has happened, whenever someone converts to anything by force, it's not, it's not a real thing, right? It's only a, I, I, I submit, but my heart is not there. But beloved, just like Jesus didn't need defending, the gospel doesn't need defending. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And we just need to be faithful. We just need to preach the word. I actually, last week, had a very, very discouraging conversation with a man who said, the reason our churches are so small, both in Clarkstop and in Porch, because, okay, well, we was mainly referring, referring to Clarkstop, he says, because we're at the wrong place. People will never drive that far to go to church. And you must change your message. People don't like to hear that God doesn't want to bless us. Like, who wants to hear that our lives are going to be difficult? Our lives are going to be full of suffering and and so if we change the location, change the theology, get the right message at the right place with the right band, with the right everything, your church will grow. You know what's the irony of that? He's right. We can have a massive church. We just change our message. Just, change, just get the, the best band, the best location, the best everything. But we don't need God for that. You see, that's the, are you, are you willing to change, exchange God for success? But that's the same lesson we need to learn, beloved. Don't be, don't be, don't be tempted to rely on your own wisdom, on manipulation, on other human methods to make the kingdom of God grow. That's God's business. Our business is to be faithful, is to preach, to live. Listen to these verses, Zechariah, Zechariah 4 verse 6. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit says the Lord of hosts. Psalm 20 verse 7, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Ephesians 6 verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So it's not our competition, it's not other people. It's not, that's not our fight. We wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So beloved, let us, not, let us rely on the simple gospel. And just live a life of love, a life of faithfulness. And let us throw away manipulation. Let us throw away force or any other method to try to fight spiritual battles. The, the, the battle is the Lord's. Amen? Amen. Well, that's the first point we can learn from this text. Is the lesson is the kingdom of God is not advanced by force. But here's the second point we can look at. is a warning. A warning as well. And the warning is this. Great sin can be done through good works. Great sin can be done through good works. And of course, I'm referring to the very betrayal of Jesus by Judas. Look at verses 44 to 45. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him and lead him away under God. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Kissing someone on the cheek was a common way of greeting. But what is hidden from our eyes from the text is the way Judas did it. In the Greek, listen to the one commentator, James Edwards says that verse 45, that word for kiss, 
is when Judas approaches Jesus, he kisses him not of modesty or reserve, but lavishly, even passionately. So can you, can you picture the scene? He puts on a show as if he's so excited to see Jesus. He, he embraces him. He calls him rabbi, which is master or teacher, respecting him, kissing him. And this is the irony. He does a good deed and in the process commits one of the greatest sins ever committed. Externally, he only kissed Jesus, right? Externally, he showed his affection for Jesus. But internally, his heart was far away from God, filled with Satan, filled with greed and money, the love of money. And he handed him over to his accusers. Accusers. Beloved, the warning is this. We should, we should take this warning as well. Many, I, I fear, flatter themselves that they do great things for God while their hearts are far away from Him. They flatter themselves and think that God must be impressed with their outward show and their outward way of presenting themselves while inside they are rotting, their souls are rotting. Beloved, remember that God has piercing eyes. That God sees through us. God looks at Man looks at outward appearances, which is also a church growth plan, right? Outward appearance. But God looks at the heart. So what we must remember is it's not enough. We shouldn't just be content with a few ticks of our outward deeds. Where is our hearts? Where is our hearts? Where is your love? It's like that text in, I think it's in Malachi, when the people brought sacrifices to God and God says, I don't want your sacrifices. Because you bring what is lame and crippled. Do you think, bring that to your governor, bring that to your king. Will he be impressed? You see, the irony is what is inside will eventually show as well. Think of the 10th commandment, of the 10 commandments. You know, all of them are kind of external, but then the 10th commandment almost goes deeper and says, you shall not what? Covet. You shall not covet. You shall not desire another man's husband, wife, car, possession, business, life, whatever. Fill in the blank. Think about the other sins that the Bible says for these sins, people, the wrath of God is coming. Sins like greed, a desire for more and more money, not never content with their possessions, never content with where they are. Envy. Looking at someone else and wishing they could lose that blessing that they received. Or jealousy, looking at someone else and wish you could be that person. Or pride, remember Jesus' warning in Matthew 6, do not practice your works by others. So good deeds, but why? So that you might be seen by them. These are all sins which the scriptures condemn and we should fight against them as well. It's not enough to just do a, good thing, a few good things. Our hearts must be pure. Jesus said, Matthew 5 is 8, or 3, Matthew 5 is, oh, sorry, it is 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So remember this warning, beloved. It's a warning. Great sin can be done through good deeds. And that's why we need Jesus. That's why we need Him to give us clean hands and a pure heart. Who of us can say, remember what we looked at in Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20? Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. This is our problem. But this is why he came, to do a heart transplant, to change us. And thank God that he came. 
So that's the second point, the warning. But thirdly, let us consider together a great encouragement. A great encouragement as well. And the encouragement is this. God is in control of all things. You see, Jesus just pointed out that he was always with them so that they could have arrested him in public. So their arrest doesn't make sense. It's hypocritical. But then he adds that little phrase at the end of verse 49. Look at that. At the end of 49 it says, But let the scriptures be fulfilled. It was written long ago, prophesied, so it is determined by God that it will come about by sovereign plan. That's the pattern of the whole chapter, of chapter 14. Look at, chapter, look at verse 21, just, just to remind yourself of this as well. It says, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Look at verse 27. It says, And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written... I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Do you see the pattern here? This, the, the whole of Jesus' betrayal, his arrest, his crucifixion, all of this has been written and therefore it is determined and therefore God is sovereign. So in control is God, so in control is Jesus that he can say, I give my life. I give it. No one takes my life from me. That is quite a claim to make when you... When, when everything looks out of control, right? Well, I could almost say, if you, if you would ever be tempted to think of a day or of a, of a moment that God is not in control, what would it be? It would be this. It would have looked like God has failed. It would have looked like God's plan has not been happening. It would be the betrayal and the arrest and the condemnation and the crucifixion of Jesus. That would be, for us, if we just had that, when we would be the most tempted to think God has lost it. God has lost his grip of history. And yet, it is meticulous. Yet, every detail is under God's plan. It's his sovereignty that's guiding the, mo the, the worst evil in the entire world to bring about the greatest good ever imaginable. J.C. Ryle commented on this. He said, these people who arrested Jesus, they were unconscious instruments carrying out God's purposes into effect. Unconscious instruments in, in God's hands. So that's an encouragement. I don't know about you, especially in a year like 2020. The world is not out of control. God is over it all. Don't fear the future. Don't fear evil plans. Don't fear evil rulers. Listen to Psalm. Psalm 2 is a great reminder of us how God feels about people who set themselves against God and trying to thwart Him and His Messiah, His anointed. Listen to Psalm 2. It says, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. God's response, verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. So, so good. <laughs> so good. He laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Beloved, no matter what happens to us or in this world, let, let this be your constant comfort. Let this be your, the rock on which your heart rests. The constant reminder to rekindle your faith in God. That God is sovereign and He uses that sovereignty for His glory and for our good. Beloved, that's an encouragement. So we've seen the lesson. 
God's kingdom is not advanced by force. The, the warning, great sin can be done through good deeds and the encouragement. God is sovereign over all, but let's close together with the climax. Here's the climax of the entire portion. This is actually the main point. So we've been, just been drawing some applicational points, but now the main point that Mark wants us to see is the total abandonment of, G, of Jesus. Because this is how the text ends. Look at verse 50. Look at the words of verse 50. And they all left him and fled. They all left him and they all fled. That's the climax. Because in the entire chapter of in the entire chapter 14, we have seen the words, all of them, all of them, over and over again. And here's the climax of what the all of them does. Look at verse 23, just to remind you of what the all of them are doing in this chapter. Look at 23. He took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank it. Look at verse 29. Peter says to them, even though they all fall away, I will not. And then verse 31, he continues to say, but he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. You see, so the, all of them, the disciples were saying, we will never leave you, we will never forsake you, and at the end, what do all of them do? They abandon him, they leave him. And that really is the picture of us. That's really our story. From the very beginning, when man sinned against God, we have been doing what the disciples have been doing. We've been running away from God, we've been fleeing from him. We've been running from him in shame and in fear. We try to hide from our Creator. That's why Paul could write in Romans 3, verse 10, when he says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, all. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And Isaiah 53, verse 6, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And our sin and our fleeing has covered us with shame. I think that's why this, this awkward last story is included. So when we read that last story, you might say, why is this story here? But I think what Mark wants to show us is this is the picture of how sin is symbolizing. I think Mark is symbolizing the effects of sin and what it will cause us to flee from Jesus. Look at verse 51 and 52 again. It says, And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. I think that has really overtones of Genesis chapter 2. Remember in the beginning, God made Adam and Eve and they were both naked and what? Unashamed. Unashamed. What a life that would have been. Never ashamed over anything they did. Never ashamed over any, anything they said or didn't do. They never felt the pang of shame. The pain of shame. That is paradise. But once they sinned, they fled. They ran away from God, trying to cover their nakedness with fig leaves, trying to earn or save themselves from God's judgment by covering themselves. So this man as well, took. this man runs away naked from Jesus. It's a shameful thing. This is what our sin does. Instead of giving us life and joy and meaning, it only gives us death and misery and shame and it takes us away. It causes us to flee from Jesus. Sin is always shameful. But in this very point, beloved, that is the good news. The climax where Jesus is totally abandoned is 
the good news. Jesus was totally abandoned by everyone for our sins. He went to the cross alone. It's amazing to think, not just without his disciples, not just without his friends, but even on the cross alone as you could get. Away from God. I love this quote from Sinclair Ferguson. He says, Jesus was being left entirely alone. In what he was about to do, no one could stand with him. No one could. He would stand alone as Savior because he alone was fit to bear the judgment of God in our place. He had to suffer alone. That's why he came. Only he could pay for our sins. Only he was good enough. Only he never sinned and could become sin. And that's why the end of Isaiah 53 verse 6, although it says we have turned everyone to our own way, the end of it says, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So the climax is not just bad news, a picture of us, but it's also good news because it shows us what Jesus has done, that he went to the cross alone. He suffered in our place. He did something that we could never do with him. So listen to me. Haven't you been running away from God too long? Like Adam and Eve, perhaps you've been trying to cover your shame. Perhaps you've been trying to cover yourself. And running away from God, shamed over what you've done. But listen, you can't do that. You can't cover yourself. God sees it. You can't hide. You can't erase your sin. You can't cover it. But God can. God can. Through Christ. Through the cross. He covers. He brings atonement for our sins. He covers our sins. Perhaps you think, but I'm already so far away, so what's the point of turning back now? What's the point of coming back? Well, because there isn't a too far away for God's grace. It can reach deeper than our most deepest sins, our most secret sins. God's grace can get there. It can save you. It can forgive you. It can take the chief and the worst of sinners and make you clean. So stop running. Stop fleeing. Come to Christ as you are. Leave your sin behind you. And come to him. Simply put your trust in Jesus. And he will save you. He will forgive you. And he will justify you. That's a free offer for all of you who are willing to come. It's for free. It's for all. Come. Come to the Savior. So for us who are in Christ, who know Christ, who loves Christ, rejoice. Rejoice in your Savior. He died alone. Remember that. You cannot add to the work that is already accomplished. It was a once-for-all sacrifice for your sins. You do not have to pay off your sins by credit or by monthly installments or anything like that. You don't have to do that. For some reason, I think we as believers, we even fall in this trap, right? We even think we're thankful that we're saved by grace at the start. But then for some reason we think, that we must now earn God's love after we are saved and that we don't need Jesus anymore, we don't need His grace anymore, but we can now just try harder or be better. But we must remember John 15, 5. What does Jesus say? He says these encouraging words to us. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Isn't that encouraging? Apart from me, you can do nothing. It's encouraging because He says, in me you can do all things. 
So rely on him. You were not saved by works and you will never be saved by works. It was and always, it was and it always will be by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then, then out of that freedom that Christ gives us, pursue holiness of heart. Pursue holiness of heart. Seek not just to be close to God in your deeds, but seek to be close to him in your heart. That when you're alone, that your heart runs to God. That the moment you can get any time alone, that your, your, your mind goes up in prayer and in devotion to Christ. That when any time you have a free opportunity, that your, your mind is meditating and chewing on the grace of God and the word of God and the promises of God. That you would be singing hymns to God out of your heart with thanksgiving. Beloved, pursue that life. Run after God. But then you will be truly joyful and truly happy. So, so beloved, even now, let us just stand in awe of who Jesus is. He is a wonderful, gracious, and a perfect Savior for all of us. He loves sinners, and therefore he loves you. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can see the glory of Christ, your son, in the, in the garden, in, in, your, in his arrest and his betrayal. Father, our hearts are even broken over that fact that one of, one of his own, Judas Iscariot, the one he chose, the one he loved, the one he even called friend, has betrayed him with a kiss. Lord, please, we pray, Lord, that we would be far away from that, that we would not be content with merely serving you with our lips, serving you with our feet, serving you with our hands, but that our hearts are far away from you. Father, grant that we would love you, that we would seek you and not run away from you. Father, thank you that you have covered our shame, that you have made a clothing for us to cover us, and that clothing is the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Thank you for his work, his perfect obedience, and his death on the cross for us. Father, I pray that we would take even the lesson, the warning, and the encouragement of this text to heart. Help us to meditate on this text. Help us to think deeply about it until our hearts rises up in joy and in praise of you, until you come again to take us to be where you are, where there will be no more sin, no more suffering, no more tears or crying ever again. So Lord, keep us in your grace and keep us in your love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.